Hello once again, everybody, and thank you for joining me in the Betters Box. It's the BangTheBook.com's MLB betting podcast for Monday, August 3rd. I am your host, Adam Burke. This and every edition of the Betters Box presented by our friends over at DSI Sportsbook. BTB and the number 200 is that promo code. 100% deposit match bonus for the Sportsbook. 100% deposit match bonus for the live casino at BetDSI. It's only a game until you bet it. Daily Picks and Tips article goes up every day over at bangthebook.com. Lots of great information, insights, and analysis in that article. A lot of very numbers-based stuff. I try to shy away from that a little bit here on the podcast simply because a lot of people listening on the go, at the gym, in the car, wherever else, some of those numbers may not resonate as well over the air. So you get a lot of that deep-dive statistical information every day over in that picks and tips piece. We got a golf major coming up this week, the PGA Championship at TPC Harding Park. I'll have a preview up for that this afternoon, as well as our daily fantasy value picks. NASCAR this weekend, NHL going on, got previews up for Canadians, Penguins tonight, and also Blackhawks, Oilers, NBA. We got all sorts of things going on over at bangthebook.com. Make sure you check it all out. And of course, we'll have Brian Blessing on Tuesday, talk PGA Championship, NHL, and NASCAR on tomorrow's podcast. Thursday, another edition of the Betters Box. Still not sure exactly what I'm going to do with the return of the full shows. Uh, You know, obviously football drives the bus here in this industry. So kind of waiting to see what happens with college football and the NFL and the timelines with those sports. But we'll be bringing back the daily show here uh, sometime sooner rather than later. Got a handful of questions here for the Monday mailbag. Then I'll go into the Beyond the Box score segment, take a look at some line moves that happened over the weekend with our Down the Line segment. Included in that, I'll give you a pick for Monday night's action, then a preview of some series here for this week that I'm keeping an eye on. So let's go ahead and dive right in here because I've got some very detailed Monday mailbag questions here from one of our regular listeners, Matt Elkins, reaching out with some very good questions here for today's show. So let's go ahead and start with those. First question here from Matt. Is there something to be said for the fact betting off steam means you're automatically getting a worse number than the syndicates? Considering how even just a half a point, a run, the spread, whatever, is the difference between a sharp line and a square line, it seems like there should be an opportunity to play contrarian to the contrarian and actually take the side of the public but with the new number. Now, here's the thing. When you talk about the sports betting business as a whole, a lot of these big syndicates, these big groups, have a lot of people that help them out. They have a lot of people that help them out with digging up information. They have a lot of people that have accounts all over the place. So they can actually jump on some of the best numbers that are out there. So for recreational, novice, amateur handicappers, even people that are trying to use this as a little bit of a supplement. They feel like they've got a good idea of what they're doing. They're able to win more often than they're able to lose. It's a different kind of world. You know, the syndicates to them, with the big amounts of money that they're betting, all of that kind of thing, getting the best of the number is is very essential. The problem is that a lot of novice and amateur bettors, they feel overwhelmed or maybe put off a little bit by the fact that they don't get the best of the number. Because everybody preaches that, right? You hear that on every podcast. You read that on every website. 
all those kinds of things. The reality is less than 1% of bettors can get the best number, and it's quite a bit less than 1%. So what you want to focus on is getting the best of the number that you can. Yes, market entry is important. It certainly does help your bottom line in the long term. You're probably going to win another better two for every hundred, depending on the price that you're getting and stuff like that. But to me, I think that if you're a novice handicapper, even if you're just a supplementer, you know, focus on the process. Focus on the handicapping of the game. Find a side that you like. And then get something better than the closing line. You are not going to get the absolute best of the number. It just doesn't happen like that unless you can sit there and stare down the odd screen all day long, have your notifications and all those types of things. Most people that bet on sports, you know, they've got other jobs. They have other obligations. They're not betting for a living. If you bet for a living, it's a lot easier to stare at the odd screen, stare down the market, get the target price that you want, or at the very least, You've got somebody doing that for you, somebody who's, you know, with you. Much like the way that runners used to be out in Las Vegas, uh, you know, back in the day. Of course, there still are runners out there for people. But you sort of had those people that can hawk the market for you and keep an eye on it. A lot of people don't have that. They don't have the network. They don't have the means. They don't have the resources. So if you get behind a line move a little bit and, you know, that line goes from minus 110 to minus 120 or something like that, If you still like it, go ahead and take it. So that's one of the biggest things I think for a lot of people out there is that, you know, they get kind of frustrated or they get kind of annoyed with the fact that they're not getting the best of the number. Well, most people don't get the best of the number. I rarely get the best of the number. And I'm somebody who, you know, does this for a living, at least from a content standpoint. And I'm constantly looking at the odd screen and, you know, kind of studying things and stuff like that. It's very hard to do. So don't sit there and think about the difference of a sharp versus public line being, you know, a half a run or a few cents of juice, something like that, because there's probably sharp money on the other side of that game too. You know, everyone likes to talk about sharp and public sides because it's easy to create content. It's easy to create, you know, topics of discussion on a sharp and public sides, but there's probably sharp money on the other side of that game too. There are probably some long-term winners that had that game priced differently, make the bet, the line moves against them, and they kind of scratch their heads a little bit, but they're still sharp, respected bettors too. So don't just think that, you know, sharp versus public splits mean all sharps are on this side and all public bettors are on this side. That is never the case. There's always going to be sharp money on both sides of a game, getting it at different points, different peaks in the line, different valleys in the line, stuff like that. So, Again, to me, I think for a lot of people out there, you know, you're not moving life-changing money. You know, you're not able to stare this thing down and look at it 24-7. Get the best of the number that you can. And to the question here that Matt's asking, he's saying, you know, well, okay, if you miss some sharp steam on a line, does that mean the other side has value? Does that mean that being contrarian now has some value to it? And I don't know. You know, playing contrarian is a risky strategy. You know, that line moved for a reason. That line moved because there was a lot of steam on it. And yes, some moves may kind of be false moves or moves on air, something like that. But a lot of times the wisdom of crowds will tell you that that's a sharp move, that that's a number that has been put where it is supposed to be. 
So playing contrarian can be a risky, very dangerous strategy, but this is about understanding the market, understanding what you want to achieve as a better, understanding your personal risk management, understanding how you handicap the game if you trust and believe in that handicap. I don't believe in the sake of being contrarian just to be contrarian. I don't think that's a great strategy at all. I think you'd rather be on a winning side that moved 10 or 15 cents instead of trying to outsmart the entire market. So again, what you want to focus on, if you're just starting out or you're somebody who's been taking this seriously for a few years, like I said, you probably don't have the bankroll. You probably don't have the resources or the network to go out there and jump on the best of the number day in and day out. Handicap the game. Find the side that you like. Then decide at that point, you know, if you want to go ahead and still take that side, even though the line moved a little bit. You know, you know, and you also don't want to be a steam chaser either. You don't want to sit there and say, oh, this line's moving. This must be the right side. That's not always the case either. Again, the best in the world are wrong 45% of the time at this. Right? At the very least, 40% of the time. So, you know, again, you want to focus on, on what you can control and what you can control is the handicap. And you want to try to learn how to read the market how to get something better than the closing line, how to not take a price when the line's going to come back, stuff like that. But again, you know, you want to handicap the games, trust in your handicap, get to the right side first. When you're getting to the right side more often than not, then you can start honing in a little bit more on getting the best possible price that you possibly can and all that kind of thing. So again, I know it's it's very it's very difficult to sit there and take a minus 125 when the line was minus 110 or something like that. There may still be value at minus 125. That line maybe should be minus 135 or something like that. But get to picking the right side. And once you've locked in your bet, watch the market, follow the market, see if you took the worst of the number, see if the number came back on you, file those things away, and then keep those in the back of your mind for when you go forward and you mature and educate yourself a little bit more as a better. So, you know, again, I think, I think it's one of the problems that a lot of people run into. And, and I've cost myself a lot of winners over the years by saying, well, shit, this line moved 15 cents already. I'm not going to take it now. And it winds up being an easy winner, you know? So those are things that you, you don't want to really fall into that habit. You know, again, the best of the number is only going to be there for a very small percentage of betters. So, you want to get to the right side first, make sure you're not getting the worst of the number, and then just kind of build off of your, your handicapping portfolio from there. Second question here from Matt says, it seems like a lot of different cappers are pushing dogs in MLB right now. I understand the variance reasons for that, but I'm talking about how often they talk about how the money plays out. I consistently hear about how hard it is to make money playing baseball when the VIG is cutting you down and you're playing favorites. But you recently talked about games that were minus 180 or better and how they would return a dramatic profit over X amount of time. That seems to be at odds with this notion that only dogs will keep you profitable. So that's the first part of the question here. And then there's a second part of the question to follow up with. And there is one strategy that I can mention here. You know, a lot of people like to bet X to win their regular unit amount. So if you've got a minus 180 favorite and you're a $100 better, a lot of people like to bet 180 to win 100. It makes the math easy. 
it makes a lot of sense. But one of the things that you can look to do with Major League Baseball, with it being a money line sport, is instead of betting 180 to win 100 on that minus 180 favorite, maybe you bet 100 to win 55 and change, or you bet 125 to win you know, $69, $70 in that type of range. Maybe you do that. Maybe you bet to risk instead of bet to win. Because what bet to win forces you to do, if that's what you like to go with, it's going to force you to bet 140 to win 100, 180 to win 100, 200 to win 100, stuff like that. Whereas if you bet to risk, you've got more control. Yeah, you're not going to win your full unit size, but maybe you bet a unit size to win whatever it is. That way, you know, it doesn't put you in a position where, and this is one of the reasons why a lot of people talk about you know not wanting to lay big chalk in baseball, stuff like that. If you lose a minus 180, it takes you a while to kind of get that back, right? You know, if you're a $100 better and you're betting to win 100 and you lose 180 on a game, it takes you a little while to get that back. You know, it sort of feels like more of a daunting task. Well, instead, you can bet to risk and you bet 100 to win whatever it is. So you're a $100 better, your average unit size is $100, but instead of laying that big chalky price, you just bet to risk 100 instead of betting to win 100, where you don't have to go minus, you know, or you don't have to lay 180 to win 100, 200 to win 100, 220 to win 100, stuff like that. You're betting 100 bucks and winning whatever it is. So that's one way that you can mitigate loss quite a bit in Major League Baseball with playing these big favorites. The second part of the question here is, and if I'm supposed to bet more dogs, how do I do it? You know, how do I convince myself to bet on a team that's expected to lose more than 50% of the time? And when you look at Major League Baseball here, yeah, the big favorites have been very profitable over the last few years, as we've talked about previously, about a 6% ROI betting all minus 180 or higher favorites over the last three years. When you look last year at favorites of minus 120 to minus 150, which is in a lot of the range that I like to play. I like to play the smaller favorites out there. They came in 59.9%, average line 132.7, uh, minus 132.7, that is, and a 5.3% ROI. But in 2018, they had a negative ROI. And in 2017, they had a 2.1% ROI. So, you know, a lot of people will sit there and say, you know, you have to bet favorites, you have to bet dogs. I understand that there's an aversion to chalk in Major League Baseball, but I think each game should be handicapped independently of those theories. You know, one of the things that you talk about, and I talked about this a little bit earlier of, you know, well, I didn't get the best of the number, or I didn't get this, I'm not going to bet it. Or I'm not going to bet 180 to win 100, that's too much chalk. Anytime you limit yourself with those things, you're taking away the opportunity to win bets. Yeah, you may lose those games, but you're also taking away the opportunity to win those games. And that's one of the things about betting to risk, betting 100 to win whatever, instead of betting 180 to win 100. You know, if you're willing to bet to risk, you're going to open yourself up to a lot of different plays because you're not going to lose 180, you're going to lose 100. So if you lose that game, but you win another game, you know, you win 100, you lost 100. So I think that's one way that you can really mitigate the aversion to chalk is betting to risk instead of betting to win. And in my tracking sheet and in the stuff I talk about at bangthebook.com, 
a lot of times it's bet to win simply because that makes the math easy for people to understand. You know, I bet 1.2 units to win a unit. That's easy. It's not I bet one unit to win, you know, 0.8 units or 0.78 units or something like that. So as long as you're, you know, tracking your plays, regardless of how you're doing it, you know, as long as you're tracking them, the math is right there in front of you. You know what you've risked, what you've lost, all those kinds of things. But this is one of those situations where, you know, in Major League Baseball with money lines, you you can bet to risk. You can bet to win, but you can also bet to risk. And when you talk about betting on underdogs, you have to understand the value of the line. At plus 120, that implies a 45.45% implied probability that that team wins the game. Do you think that team is more of a 50-50 proposition? If you think they win that game 50% of the time, and the line implies 45%, that's how you have to think about it. You know, Do you think a plus 140 underdog, which is 41.67%, wins that game 45% of the time? Well, maybe there's value on that game. Yeah, you have to understand that underdogs are expected to lose more often than they will win, but you also have to understand the probability that if they're 40% to win that game and you think they win it 45% of the time, there's value in that underdog. So that's the way you have to think about underdog betting with Major League Baseball is, yeah, this team is going to lose more often than they're going to win. However, I think they can win this game more often than the line would suggest. So that's the philosophy, the approach that you have to have with underdog betting is to say, okay, I know that they're going to lose more often than they're going to win. But I also think that they can win more often than this line suggests. So I'm going to go ahead and play this underdog. That's the philosophy and the mindset that you have to have playing underdog money lines really in any sport. Now, of course, as we know, favorites are expected to win more than 50% of the time. That's why they're the favorite. But also 26 of the 30 teams in Major League Baseball last year lost at least 40% of their games. You know, favorites in Major League Baseball were 61.9%. Favorites in the NFL one outright 67.6%. In the NBA, 68.9%. College football, 76.7%. And college basketball, 73.5%. So relative to a lot of the other betting markets that are out there, underdogs do win more in Major League Baseball, which is why you see a lot of people betting or saying, you know, oh, you got to bet underdogs in baseball. If you bet the right ones, sure. If you bet the underdogs that you think will win more often than the line suggests, sure. But overall, too, more favorites win in baseball than underdogs. And it's a pretty large spread. So, you know, look, I don't think that anybody should subscribe to those blanket statements of, oh, you have to do this. Oh, you have to do that. Oh, you can't bet big chalk. Why the hell not? You know, if a team is minus 200 and you think they're going to win that game a hell of a lot more often than that, why not bet on them? So that's the mindset you need to take here with Major League Baseball is that you want to look at what the line suggests from an implied probability standpoint. And there are line calculators out there all over the place. All you got to do is Google one and you're going to find one. But if you put in that price and you say, oh, I think this team wins more often than that, or based on my handicap, I think they've got a better chance of winning than that. Then you make that play. And whether it's a dog or a favorite, it's irrelevant. But again, I think one of the big ways you can mitigate those heavy chalk prices is you bet to risk. You bet your unit amount to risk instead of to win. 
And that's something I think can really help you with that aversion, uh, you know, that allergic nature to chalk that a lot of people have. Last question here from Matt. He says, from a modeling standpoint, says some of the decision-making process seems really subjective and often pretty arbitrary. I see a heap of factors that all contribute towards my goal, and I'm not sure how to structure it all. So the question he's asking here is, what would you start with if you were putting together a model? And I'm not the best person to answer that question. I don't do modeling. I don't have my own opening numbers for baseball or any sport, really, except for college football. I'll do college football power ratings. But again, a lot of different factors go into that as well. The biggest factor to me with a model in terms of the people I've talked to and what I've kind of seen out there is how you weigh the factors in the model. You know, which stats, which metrics in that model matter the most to you? And I think that is the subjective element of modeling. You know, the data is black and white. It's cut and dry. It's out there. You can interpret it any way you want to. But the data in and of itself, the numbers, the statistical formulas that are out there are what they are. But the subjective element comes in when you decide what you want to place more importance on. And I think that the way to do that, and again, I'm not a modeler, so maybe I'm talking out of my ass here, but I think the way to do that is to backtest. Put in your formulas, put in those numbers, all those kinds of things. Go back and look at where the market was on a certain game and backtest it compared to what that looks like. And, you know, I, I think to me, modeling is a very labor-intensive process to set everything up. I'm not smart enough to do that. I don't have enough time to do that. But if you set it up correctly and you start backtesting it against past games, once you've got those data inputs in there, you want to see how close you were to the market number. You know, if a market number is minus 140 and your number is minus 200, you're off by 8% on the implied probability. That's probably pretty high. You're probably not going to have too many games with an 8% edge. If that's the case, then your model and what it's spitting out probably needs to be tweaked a little bit. But now if your number is minus 140 and the market's minus 165, that's more like 4%. You may have a lot more of those scenarios. So that's what you kind of want to look for, I think, in the modeling process is backtesting, is you know, finding out, does this work? Is this going to give me a number that's realistic? Again, you probably shouldn't have 8% overlays coming out of your model. You know, 3 4% overlays, a 5% overlay, things like that, you know, while they're going to be a little bit rarer in nature, that means that your model is probably working a lot better. So that's what you have to figure out is how you want to weigh the different formulas and components of your model you have to understand the implied, impl- excuse me, the implied probability of the market and of the number that you're spitting out. Because in a lot of instances, a model is going to spit out a win percentage, an expected score, stuff like that. If your expected score is, you know, five to three for a hockey game and the total is five and a half, something might be wrong there. So that's why you take the time to back test and figure all of it out and all that. Again, I'm not a modeler, so this is just kind of my interpretation of what modeling is like. But if you want to talk to some modelers out there, go on Twitter and find them. You know, a lot of times they will be very open and honest uh, with their process and do as much as they can to help you out. So really appreciate the questions, Matt. Thank you so much, man. Again, if you ever have questions for the Monday Mailbag, at Skating Tripods on Twitter, 
uh, skinningtripods at gmail.com via email as well. All right, so we dig into the Beyond the Box Score segment here, and we start with uh, what's going to be a pretty difficult week here. You know, the Phillies, Brewers, Marlins, Nationals, Blue Jays, Cardinals, all with extended layoffs due to COVID, due to the Marlins breakout, due to the Cardinals breakout. Uh, Just, you know, a very strange situation for those teams here going into this week. Massive element of the unknown. And also, too, we've got a rash of pitcher injuries around the major leagues. Verlander, Bailey, Mikolas, Osuna, Presley, Odorizzi, Otani, Kluber, Canely, Davis, Crick, Biagini, Montgomery, Peacock, uh, DiSclefani, Puck, Strasburg, all kinds of guys dealing with injuries right now. So we're getting a lot of spot starters, a lot of openers and bulk guys and just landmines all over the place. Late postings of these lines. Obviously, everything action nowadays because listed pitchers are no longer a thing. I don't think this rash of pitcher injuries really slows down anytime soon. I'm sure some guys are trying to pitch through things right now, trying to be out there for their teams. Maybe those eventually become too much. Maybe some of these injured pitchers wind up coming back. But this is probably going to be a thing. You know, the ringer, uh, Ben Lindbergh over at the ringer posted a good article today about all these pitcher injuries and talk to some biomechanics experts and stuff like that. And, you know, again, this odd ramp up to the season, kind of getting started, then stopping, then starting again. You know, how much do these guys stay in shape over the quarantine? Were they able to throw? You know, did they throw at 70, 80%, maybe 90%? We don't know, but a lot of spot starters and openers and bulk guys and all these types of things. And, you know, the big thing is here, two weeks into the season will be Thursday. And the rosters are supposed to go down to 28. And then two weeks after that, they'll go down to 26. Will that be changed based on all of these pitcher injuries and openers and spot starters and all these kinds of things, piggybacks, everything else? I don't know. They're kind of changing stuff on the fly, you know, going to the seven inning double headers and all that kind of thing. It's tough. You know, I'm surprised I've gotten off to the start that I have in baseball this season with all this stuff going on. But now, this is not going away, and you're probably going to see six-man rotations and, and all sorts of different things. It's not going anywhere. So, you know, it's tough for me. I write the article in the morning, and I lock in the plays, and, and different things happen and all that. But, you know, again, for you, it, it may be in your best interest to kind of wait it out and see what happens, not just with these lines, but with these starting pitcher situations and lineups and, and all that type of thing, too. This is not going away for this very strange 60-game season here. The Indians and the Twins. The Indians scored four runs on 16 hits in this series. They did draw 13 walks, but their contact quality is just non-existent at this point in time. Second lowest hard hit rate in baseball. Uh, They're in the bottom five in barreled balls. They aren't hitting. The thing of it is, they actually held the Twins at bay in this series. They held the Twins to 10 runs on 25 hits, six of those runs off of solo homers. So it's not like the Twins manufactured a whole lot against the Indians pitching staff, but the Indians just didn't hit. You know, they're not hitting fastballs. They're not hitting anything. They seem very ill-prepared. The Twins have above-average pitching, but it's not elite. They face the Royals. They don't have great pitching. The White Sox don't have great pitching, and the Indians still aren't hitting. And something I think is pretty interesting here, and I was trying to speculate on why this may be the case here this morning, the Indians this season – 
have had a platoon advantage in 74.4% of their plate appearances. So about about three-fourths of the time, they've had a lefty versus a righty or a righty versus a lefty, and they're still not hitting. And interestingly enough, the team that's second in platoon advantage percentage is the Arizona Diamondbacks, and the team that's third is the Pittsburgh Pirates. And right now, the Indians, Diamondbacks, and Pirates rank 28th, 29th, and 30th in weighted on base average. So I'm wondering here if maybe there's something to be said about getting a lot of reps. The thing for the Indians is this, that, you know, their primary guys are switch hitters. So they're getting all the reps. They're just, you know, and the switch hitters, Lindor, Hernandez, um, and one other, and Jose Ramirez for them, I think they've accounted for like 45% of the hits that the Indians have or something like that. So these platoon guys that don't play every day, with this weird ramp-up to the season, they're not getting a whole lot of reps. Maybe that's holding back the Indians, the Diamondbacks, and the Pirates. I'm not sure. It's just a speculation on my part, just a theory. But that may be the case here because they're kind of rotating guys in and out of the lineup on a daily basis that maybe it's holding those offenses back. So that could be something you want to watch here as we go forward with the Indians, the Diamondbacks, and the Pirates. Mets and the Braves, they go today. The Braves need to beat Jacob deGrom, and if they do, they'll sweep this series. Just a a bunch of different things for the Mets here. You know, on Friday, their bullpen collapsed. On Saturday, Michael Waka was terrible. On Sunday, they were one for 15 with a runner in scoring position. They had all kinds of chances early in the game, didn't take advantage of them. The Mets are two for 25 with runners in scoring position over the last two days. And we'll see these wild variances and and all these types of things, but, you know, 10 out of 60 games already done for a lot of these teams. So the Mets, the fact that they're three and seven right now, they've had all sorts of different issues. It's really problematic because at this point in time, I mean, now, you know what, if if you say 35 wins, does it, you're going to go 32 and 18 the rest of the way. That's not easy to do. So for a lot of these teams, you know, these first 10 games have been critically important and, and some teams have done well. And some teams have not. And the Mets are a team that has not. And the Braves have won four in a row here. So you start wondering, as this thing moves forward with some of these teams that get off the slow starts, what is the mindset of that team as we go forward here? And I'm not saying the Braves are throwing in the towel or anything like that, but, you know, one day it's one thing, the next day it's another thing, the day after that it's another thing. That gets frustrating. That'll beat you down. You know, Jacob deGrom has been excellent in his two starts. He's gotten three runs of support. How how long does he keep going out there and and not getting frustrated about that? Especially because today, his third start probably makes up 25% of his starts for this season. So those are things that you kind of want to watch for a little bit. Sort of the mindsets of these teams. Maybe teams coming off of a bad loss, something like that. The Twins had the bullpen melt on Friday. Then Waka was bad. They scored one run in that game. So there is carryover, I think when all of these games are magnified. And that is something I think we want to take more of a situational handicapping assessment of as this season goes along. As far as the Braves go, Max Fried and Mike Soroka. Mike Soroka goes today against Jacob DeGrom. 23 innings pitched, a 195 ERA. Every other starter for the Braves, 21 innings pitched, a 771 ERA. And Tuki Toussaint and Kyle Wright didn't give up runs in this series, but they gave up a lot of base runners. So the Braves have two really good starters and a collection of below-average hurlers beyond that. So that'll be something you want to take a, a keep a close eye on here 
with the Braves throughout this season. Finally, the Orioles break up the Baltimore Orioles, man. They swept the Tampa Bay Rays over the weekend. The Rays fall to four and five, and this can't happen. When you play a team in your division 10 times and they're one of the worst teams in baseball, you cannot get swept. And that just happened for the Rays. And when you look at them here in this series, Blake Snell not sharp in game one. Tyler Glass now not efficient. Took him 88 pitches to get 14 outs. Yanni Chirinos pitched into the fifth, but only went four and a third. A lot of relief work being required by the Rays here so far. Their bullpen has gotten unlucky. They have the second highest batting average on balls in play against. But this is a mounting workload for this Rays bullpen because their starters just aren't giving them any length right now. They didn't really ramp those guys up leading into the season. They're trying to protect Snell, protect Glass now. I'm not saying they're punting this season by any means, but you know they're not going all out in this 60-game sprint to really make a big push, I don't think. And that's a little bit concerning for me as somebody who really did like the Rays going into this thing. Now, of course, we'll see as they go more times through the rotation what happens. But that was something that stood out to me here is that the Rays bullpen had to do a lot of legwork in this series. They weren't particularly good at doing it. And they really squandered three games there against a team that they should have at least taken two out of three from. So we take a look here at the down the line segment in Friday. Speaking of the Rays, we saw money come in against Blake Snell. And the market has soured on Blake Snell a little bit, not just this year, but at the tail end of last year. That may be something you want to watch because he's still priced very high but the market is fading him a little more often. The Red Sox actually took money in all three games against the Yankees here in that series, and the Yankees swept them in that series. But the Red Sox took money against lefty Jordan Montgomery on Friday, also took money against James Paxton on Sunday. The Red Sox will take money against lefties, it looks like right now, with the composition of their lineup. Looks like people kind of like their projections against left-handed pitchers. So when Boston's facing a lefty, if you want to play them, and right now that's very difficult to do, you want to try and get out in front of that line move if you can. So money come in on the Mets on Friday in that series against the Braves. That was Sean Newcomb in that one, and Newcomb was not good. The market does not like Sean Newcomb. I like Newcomb a little bit more than the market, so we'll see how that goes. It didn't go well on Friday. The Braves did win that game. Uh, We got very lucky to get that one with a five-run eighth inning. But the market's not high on Sean Newcomb. So we'll see uh, if Newcomb stays in the rotation and also what those line moves look like in his games. Garrett Richards took some money against John Gray in the Padres-Rockies game on Friday. I believe it's the second time that John Gray has been faded here so far. No, I don't have anything against John Gray. The velocity is down a little bit, though, so that is something to keep an eye on. But the market already saying it. They're not big John Gray fans for this season. So again, we try to put together these profiles of the pitchers statistically, but also with how the market views them. So we can try and get the best of the number uh, in some of these situations that we can. And some of these guys are just isolated as guys to back and guys to fade. A guy to back, Luis Castillo, took a ton of money on Friday. Reds came up short, but Castillo's a guy that does take a lot of money 25 and 30 cent line moves more often than not in his starts. One guy the market likes to fade, Trevor Williams. And that happened on Friday in the Cubs-Pirates game. You Darvish took all the money there in that one. And the Cubs were victorious in that game. Now on Saturday, a day after we saw the Blake Snell fade, 
Money came in on Tyler Glass now. That was against Wade LeBlanc uh, in that series against Baltimore. Obviously, the Rays did not win that game. As I said, they got swept. But Glass now taking money, Snell getting faded a little bit. That's just kind of what's going on with the Rays right now in the betting market. Once again, on Saturday, the Red Sox did take money, although that was against Masahiro Tanaka. Just looks like they thought the market had overpriced the Yankees a little bit. Tanaka in that first start back off the concussion on the Yankees did end up winning that one as well. Luis Urias, or Julio Urias, excuse me, took money against Luke Weaver on Saturday and the Diamondbacks. Seems like maybe the market's not super high on Luke Weaver, also not high on the Diamondbacks offense to this point. Dodgers were a winner in that one. We were on that one as well. Uh, So that was one that we took advantage of. Money came in against the Pirates again on Saturday. Money's coming against the Pirates a lot here. That was Tyler Chatwood in that one. Chatwood's been pretty good in his two starts. Maybe he keeps taking some money, but a lot of that just a big fade of the Pirates there on Saturday. Now on Saturday, Mike Fires was on the mound for the A's, and he was pitching on the road at Seattle. And Mike Fires is a guy, massive home road splits, massive ERA, FIP, and XFIP discrepancies. Generally speaking, the market will come in against the guy like Mike Fires. The market did not on Saturday. And I think a big part of it is that the A's were facing a lefty in Yusei Kikuchi. Now, when the A's faced Andrew Heaney on opening day, money came in on Oakland. They haven't faced many left-handed starters here to this point, but I do think that when they do, money will come in on Oakland. So keep an eye out for that. Any left-handed starter against the A's, money probably coming in on that Oakland side. Sunday, we saw some money come in on the Twins against Aaron Savale and the Indians. Uh, Savale was fine, gave up a couple home runs, but the Indians, once again, not hitting, which has kind of been the MO for their season. Uh, We'll see, you know, the Indians getting bet against here today with Sonny Gray and Zach Plesek. A big John Lester fade on Sunday. So I guess the way that people bet on the Pirates is to fade John Lester. The Cubs still won that game, but John Lester, not a guy I'm particularly high on either. Uh, So that was not a surprising line move to me at all. Seems like the Rangers have kind of been isolated as a fade team as well. They're also not really hitting. Uh, That was also a fade of Mike Miner uh, in that game against the Giants yesterday. Uh, So, you know, Mike Miner, not a guy that the market necessarily loves. Low ERA, higher FIP, higher XFIP. Again, that will create line moves out there in the marketplace. For Monday, as I mentioned, money coming in against the Indians. With Zach Plesak on the hill, money coming in on the Reds and John Gray. Have not seen Jacob DeGrom money as of yet. I think it happens ultimately, but sometimes the moves that don't happen are pretty telling, and that seems to be a move that's not happening out there with the Mets and the Braves. I disagree with the Twins fade today. I'm seeing money come in against Lewis Thorpe. This will be a bullpen game for Minnesota. They called up a couple of AAA guys to pitch for them. Sean Poppin and Jorge Alcala, um, but they make a lot of hard contact, and Derek Holland allows a lot of hard contact. I took the run line with the Twins. That's my play for today on the show, and I wrote it up in the article over at bangthebook.com. The Twins are doing a very good job now of developing arms, and Lewis Thorpe has pitched very well. He's a top 10 prospect in their org. I don't know how far he'll go, but I also don't expect the Pirates to take full advantage of the relievers that come in after that. So I like the Twins in a blowout here today with their run line. 
Finally, Oakland, again, as I mentioned, taking money today. That is Frankie Montas, but they're also facing a lefty in Justice Sheffield for the Mariners. Four series will run through here for the week ahead. We start with the Dodgers and the Padres. Walker Bueller, Chris Paddock in a good one today. Dustin May, Dinelson Lamont on Tuesday. Ross Stripling, Garrett Richards on Wednesday. The Padres are a little bit of a fade team in my mind right now. They are faring extremely well with runners in scoring position, one of the highest BABIPs in baseball. I think they have the most home runs with a runner in scoring position. They're outscoring teams right now because they're doing really well from a sequencing standpoint. Their bullpen is not pitched all that well. Their starters have been kind of up and down. But I think offensively, the Padres are overachieving a little bit right now. And they get Bueller, May, and Stripling here. Three very, very tough right-handed pitchers. Now, the Dodgers are making a ton of hard contact. But right now, Mookie Betts has got a bruised finger. Corey Seager's got a strained quad, I believe. Two huge parts of their offense are questionable, not just for tonight, but for this series. So the Dodgers are making a ton of hard contact. The Padres doing the same. They're making a lot of hard contact, but they're kind of overachieving a little bit. So maybe something you want to keep an eye on here for that series. The Indians and Reds will play two in the Queen City, then two in the land with the Ohio Cup on the line here in this four-game series. Zach Plesak and Sonny Gray today. Shane Bieber and Tyler Mayle tomorrow. Luis Castillo, Mike Clevenger Wednesday. Uh, the Reds have not yet announced the starter for Thursday. It'll be Carlos Carrasco for the Indians. The one angle I will look at here, and again, the Indians aren't hitting, so this is kind of scary, but Tyler Mayle has been very good against righties throughout his career and just downright awful against lefties. Now, they worked on this with him a little bit last year, so maybe I won't fire on the Indians, but it is Bieber going for the Tribe on Tuesday and Mayle with some big platoon advantage splits in his career where lefties hit him very, very well. So maybe we'll take the Indians here on Tuesday, but the Indians just have to get those bats going in some way, shape, or form. I do think that maybe Luis Castillo on Wednesday will take some money as Mike Clevenger's off to a little bit of a slow start here to the season so far. Red Sox and Rays. Quick little two-gamer here. You've got Nate Uvalde, Charlie Morton on Tuesday. Martin Perez, Ryan Yarborough on Wednesday. Yarborough is a lefty, so maybe Red Sox money comes in on Wednesday. I think you're more looking at totals money on that game with Martin Perez, just not really beloved out there in the betting markets. But the Rays need to get this thing figured out. The Red Sox go to the Trop, which is a very bad hitting environment. They don't have a good pitching staff. So I think the Rays should do well in this little two-game series, but the prices that we have to lay... I'm not exactly sure what those look like here at this point in time. Finally, one more series of interest, the Blue Jays and the Braves. The Blue Jays avoid Mike Soroka. He'll go today. They have platoon advantages against Max Freed tomorrow. What happens after that, nobody really knows. A lot of to-be-determines for the pitchers here in this series with the Blue Jays, you know, missing some games because of COVID and everything else. Um, You know, again, it's a tough spot because the Blue Jays, some downtime. The Braves playing really well. How does that have an impact, not just on the gameplay itself, but on the betting market and how this series is priced? I'll be very interested to see that Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday here of this upcoming week. Remember, daily picks and tips every day over at bangthebook.com. Tomorrow, we'll chat NHL, PGA Championship, and a little bit of NASCAR with Brian Blessing on Bang the Book Radio. That'll do it for me. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. 
And remember that you'll never strike out when you're in the betters box.